After marking song number 10, as Brother Adam has asked us to do, and we'll use that at the proper time a bit later in the service, might I also ask us to keep in mind as well those issues concerning the nearness of the Bible Bowl. It's, uh, it's soon now right upon us. In fact, the actual event will take place two weeks from yesterday, September the 11th, 2010. And our youngsters continue their preparation. They continue their work as it relates to, to that event, their studying of those chapters. And with that in mind, that brings us to what we have undertaken at least over the past several months on our Sunday evening lessons, looking at the book of Exodus. And as we've looked at chapters 1 through 24, excluding chapter 6, we've been reminded that many of these things not only touched the society of an ancient day, but there were principles embedded within it that we have found expressed in other places in the Bible and actually are meaningful for us today. As we, in fact, come tonight to looking at chapters 22 and 23, or rather 21 and 22, we are in a position of approaching near the end of our study. Next Sunday night should be the last lesson in this series of lessons on the book of Exodus. And at that point, we will conclude that 24th chapter and be ready to draw some summary statements or summary ideas. Might I point out that we've also made use of the bulletin for some questions and the puzzles that we've worked on as we continue to pray for the effort and the event. We're about to reach again a point of fruition, and it's hopefully been good for each of us, not just our youngsters, but for all of us, to have been reminded of some of these salient truths found in the book of Exodus. It is with that thought in mind tonight that we will approach our lesson in a similar pattern to the ones before, looking at a particular passage as we look at the historical matters first, and then seeking to choose a few representative passages and learn some lessons that you and I can make use of today. And with that approach in mind, let's then look at chapters 21 and 22 and notice just a few of the features a few of the overarching matters that might be stated relative to these chapters. The children of Israel, as we have so interestingly learned, having left Egypt, proceeded in their wandering, and they have now arrived at Mount Sinai. We noted, in fact, our, on our last lesson, they had arrived at this mountain. And as they were encamped at its base, God was about to deliver to them a marvelous set of laws and regulations in a concrete fashion that they had not seen before. Among those matters tonight will be some greatly specific things. Interestingly, we remember last Sunday night the Ten Commandments, for example, and we laid some emphasis upon the thrust behind them, but tonight we will extend that thinking by noting a whole additional area of regulations, statutes, and laws. I've tried to summarize by basically titling nothing more some of the regulations that we're about to see in these two chapters. In fact, as I list them, I'll be rather brief in my discussion of them, but you probably remember some of the things that were said concerning each of them. God began in chapter 21 by delivering various regulations concerning slaves. After six years of service, that Hebrew male slave was to be set free. He was not to be kept in a permanent state of slavery unless that was his choice to do so. Following that were regulations concerning female slaves, the ways in which they could become wives, but how that if so, they were to be treated as an equal wife with all the rights and privileges according to wifedom. Following that, we notice 
regulations concerning murder and how it was different than manslaughter. Premeditated murder was to be punished by death. However, manslaughter, accidental death, if you please, was in a different category, as in some ways we appreciate in the laws of our land even today. We also remember there were laws concerning kidnapping. One couldn't kidnap another. Again, the penalty was death. In addition, there was a tremendous revelation concerning disrespectfulness to parents. A child who was disrespectful to his or her parents could, in fact, be put to death. It was to be noted if that reached the level of smiting one's parents or cursing one's parents, it, in fact, could be punishable by death. We easily see that it was God's intent to recognize and to embed in that society of the Hebrew nation an appreciation for that authority vested in parenthood. In terms of fighting, we learn that God even was so specific as to make regulations concerning fighting. If two men got into a fist fight and they damaged an onlooker, for instance, a pregnant woman, God had specific things to say about the fines that could be placed upon them if they injured that woman. And furthermore, if that child within her, if it was born without any difficulty or problem, the fine was different than if that child was caused to die. We easily learn then that God had thoughts about the fact that that which was within her was a human life. It was not a fetus. It was not something that one could cast aside as non-living. Notice here, God considered that life within her as life, human life at that. We notice that vengeance was also discussed. We easily appreciate that God had in place here that which you and I remember as eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for life, wound for wound. And that aspect was embedded in this law of ancient society to the point that they had to be aware of, and later the cities of refuge would be put in place if one had, were guilty of manslaughter. There was a place to which they could go and there understand the safety and security that could come their way. Inflicted injury. If a person purposefully afflicted injury upon another, that is, with, with premeditation, one harmed or damaged another, there was a particular law in place. Retribution of particular sort was to be made. Harm or loss due to another's animal. If I had an animal and it got loose and got into your garden and ate it up, there were punishments placed upon me for allowing my animal to get loose. One had to be aware that God had in mind an understanding of protection for one's property. Protection because it was possession that was understood in that regard. And if another availed himself of it, taking advantage of it, there was to be retribution. There was to be punishment in that regard. If there was an open pit that one had digged for some reason, and another became injured by falling in that pit, there was in fact to be punishment laid upon me. I couldn't just open a pit in such a position in place that another or his animal could be damaged thereby or injured thereby without there being punishment for me. It thus placed upon us the thought one had to be aware of the responsibility according to responsibility in society. I was to act in no way that could lead to your harm 
if by any means possible, I was to take care of my property and I was to in fact not engage in some activity that could carelessly lead to the injury of another. In addition to that, the stealing of an animal. In that day and time, certainly one could imagine an ox or a sheep. One could steal it maybe or at least satisfy one's own family need. Here the inspired writer said if that were to happen, retribution had to be made either four or five to one. If I stole a sheep or an ox, it had to be repaid four or five to one. Thus that placed a great limitation on one's willingness, hopefully, to engage in such kind of activity like that. Causing damage to another's possessions. If a fire due to my cause broke out in your crop and burned it up, there was to be retribution on my part for you. I let such a thing happen. Doesn't that help us appreciate that not only were those Ten Commandments given, but these laws were in place to help each one realize that if society is to be comfortable, if it is to be that which would meet the needs in a societal fashion, these kinds of things need to be understood. And they need to have an appreciation in the mindset of all God-fearing people, to be sure. Furthermore, we notice trespassing in substance. That basically means this. If one purposefully allowed his animal, my grass crop isn't very good, but my neighbor's is good, I'll just let my ox graze over there for a while. Notice God even addressed that point. And furthermore, punishment was to be laid upon the person who allowed that to take place. We notice in the matter of borrowing and lending, which is something that often took place then as it does now, God even had statements about how that was to be done, how the lending was to take place, and that it was never to be done, collecting inordinate amounts of interest from those who had made the lending. Isn't it interesting, too, that God addresses fornication? There was to be no fornication amongst God's people, and that included even activities with animals. That, too, was absolutely and completely forbidden. Furthermore, statements about witchcraft. We can appreciate in that that there were problems with that then, just as there continue to be today, punishable again by death on that occasion. Might we notice that bestiality as well as idolatry were to be not even mentioned among the people of God. As God had already stated in the first of the Ten Commandments, no gods before me, they were to understand that even as the thought was reiterated here. When it came to strangers and widows and orphans, they were to never oppress them, never exploit them, never take advantage of them, but in fact to show them the attributes of compassion and care. So much so that, again, one can imagine that would be a kind of circumstance where some, not only in that day but our own, have taken advantage of those who were in sorrowful positions. God absolutely forbade that kind of behavior. We notice charging usury or even property. That, too, was not to take place. Now, God did not command that they could not charge interest, but it was never to be unreasonable, never to be inordinate, never to be exorbitant. Furthermore, we notice the reviling of God was absolutely forbidden, 
And in as much as that was to be true, that is a grand lesson for each and every one still to our own day. The name of God, the character of God, the attribute of God never to be reviled. He's to be feared, reverenced, and respected, but never reviled. And finally, God gave two final notes, at least in these chapters, one on the matter of being holy, one on the issue relating to offering proper offerings to God. With that very brief overview, might we extract a few of these and look at some more pertinent lessons and some direct ones for you and for me even until this very hour. The first one we'll draw from chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. Looking somewhat more thoroughly and somewhat more delicately at one of the issues that might on the surface seem a very interesting situation. Exodus 21, beginning in verse 28. If an ox gore a man or a woman that they die, then the ox shall be surely stoned and his flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be quit. But if the ox were wont to push with his horn in time past, and it hath been testified to his owner, and he hath not kept him in, but that he hath killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and his owner also shall be put to death. If there be laid on him a sum of money, then he shall give for the ransom of his life whatsoever is laid upon him. Whether he have gored a son or have gored a daughter, according to this judgment shall it be done unto him. If the ox shall push a manservant or a maidservant, he shall give unto their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. It is in this place we find a very unusual set of teachings in one regard, but at the top we find that if an ox were to accidentally, for instance, to break free from its loosing and were to gore a person, we find that the following thing was to take place. The ox was to be stoned, but the owner was to be quit. That is to say, would be freed from the guilt of that which the ox had done. But we notice that as interesting as that sounds, what if the owner had known that his ox was vicious and aggressive? What if he had known that that circumstance had taken place and in time past he'd been wont to get out, to push with his horn, to be aggressive with regard to others? There was a different punishment laid. Again, if that ox were to again break free to gore a person, we find the ox was to be stoned, the owner was to be put to death. Now we notice in the verses that follow, in verse 30, if there were to be laid upon him a sum of money, a ransom if you please, we notice that there was a rather extensive price to be paid in that regard. But it would seem in that that there's also a lesson for us to appreciate. It has to do with the thought that God intended for humanity to enjoy the right of living free from the viciousness and aggressiveness of these domesticated animals. Notice on that occasion, one could have these animals like oxen in possession, but if the time had been shown that that animal were aggressive and one didn't keep his fence up, one didn't take care to chain him properly, to keep a good rope around him, then I had to pay for the nature of that ox and the damage he did. 
Isn't it interesting as one gives thought to the degree of that punishment and what God intended to be appreciated? So much so that you and I notice when it was an accident, there was something very different. If the owner did not know of an aggressive ox, and if that ox had broken free by accident and done this thing, the owner was quit from that responsibility. God does thus place accidents in a different place than premeditated activity, doesn't he? If in my carelessness I hadn't kept the aggressive ox up, then I have a guilt with respect to that activity. But it was, but if it were an accident, not knowing the situation concerning the ox and it broke free, that accident was to be viewed differently. In Ecclesiastes 9 verse 11, we find that time and chance happen to them all. And today, isn't it true that accidents can happen? And sometimes those accidents can greatly weigh upon your mind and on mine. Maybe you and I have been involved in accidents before in which someone was injured by it. No premeditation took place. There wasn't any planning to do harm or damage to someone, but it happened. Maybe you and I have been in an automobile accident and someone was critically injured, maybe even lost their life. Notice in that accident, we should appreciate that in this world those things will happen. No eternal guilt rests upon you and me for an accident like that. If, on the other hand, with some kind of premeditation, I, in carelessness, have not done the duty and responsibility that God has given me and it has led to the injury of someone else, maybe even their life, then that is an entirely different category and great prayer is going to be needed. Something to help appreciate the error that was mine. Where does this paint the situation of those who drive drunken and lead to the death of somebody else? They have engaged in an activity known to be condemned by God, known, in fact, to be separate and apart from the goodwill that He has shared, and yet they have engaged in it anyway, and in their carelessness they have led to the death of, of, of a human being or more. Doesn't that place it in a, at least a parallel circumstance as to the one before us? It is certainly something to consider. You'll notice that you and I are given the order to be dutiful servants and stewards of that which God has given us. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2. God has given to all of us a bounty of great blessings, be it automobiles, possessions of animals, houses, and otherwise. And we must be responsible and use them in the way that would be pleasing to God, never irresponsibly, never carelessly. For each of us, and certainly youngsters alike, as we begin to think about cars and doing things like that, we must always utilize those means in a right fashion, never with irresponsibility, never carelessly. For in fact, we notice that that is so far removed from the stewardship that God has placed upon us. Perhaps finally... One interesting kind of thought that occurs near the end of that passage that we read, it is found in verse number 32. Did you notice in reading that as injury were to come upon a servant, be it a man or a woman servant, what was the amount of money that was to be paid? We learned that the ox was to be stoned, but it was 30 pieces of silver. 
we encounter that same monetary value later, of course, in the sacred scriptures, and we each probably remember where that is. That was the betrayal price that Judas got for Jesus. He bargained with them for 30 pieces of silver. It does not seem as if that was an accidental amount. It harkens all the way back in its ultimate principle to the very text before us. And thus do you notice that at the bargain that Judas made for Jesus, our Lord was likened unto a dead slave. Thirty pieces of silver was what was to be paid if an ox slew a servant. And that was the same amount that Judas got for Jesus. Oh, the Son of God, and Judas only reckoned him as worth a dead slave. Doesn't it speak volumes about the character and the beauty of the subjection of our Lord and humiliation, being traded for such a paltry amount? But doesn't it bring us back to appreciate that all of that was written beforehand? It was not an accidental thing. It fulfills Scripture, as this is repeated again in Zechariah chapter, chapter number 9. It is with that in mind that perhaps another lesson can come before us. This time, drawn from Exodus 22, verse 18. This verse is much shorter than the previous text that we read. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. And with that, the curtain drops on Exodus 22:18. A very brief passage. But doesn't it speak volumes about God's perspective toward and the character of witchcraft in the human family? Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Let's give just a few moments thought to, about, to witchcraft and sorcery. I might submit to you that there is an abundance of activity in this area today. There are those that appeal to spells and to witchcraft to Ouija boards, to speaking to the dead, to characteristics concerning matters relating to communication with supernatural magic and powers. It was a rather eye-opening experience for me to be a little bit aware of just how prevalent this is in our world today. You and I may almost look at it sometimes as hearing others speak of it. It's just fun to have somebody read your palm. And it's fun to look at those who read cards and leaves and we think of it as just a time of fun and games. It's not. As often as God addresses it in the Old Testament, His message is uniform. And as we shall find, the New Testament message is no different. In fact, think with me about just some of the things shared on a few of the websites. When I looked, I only looked at two. But it was remarkable the detail given there as to what spells are to be chanted and how it's to be done and what results are to come from it. And it would appear that there are many, at least given the counter at the bottom of the site that tells you how many have access to the site. It's rather remarkable how prevalent apparently this is. Think about these things with me if you would. I suppose there's always been in the human society an element of attraction toward that which is secretive and that which in fact pronounces and pounces upon things that relate to sorcery and magic. But again, God's word was this, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Among those activities that were punishable with capital punishment, witchcraft was one of them. Be it a man or a woman engaged in witchcraft, put them to death. I might invite you to look at just how wrong these matters are presented. 
We've heard God speak of it here in Exodus 22.18. In Deuteronomy 18, verse number 10, there is a more expansive discussion given, and I would invite your attention as we read briefly from that particular setting. Again, that's found in Deuteronomy 18, beginning in verse number 10. There shall not be found among you any one that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord, and because of these abominations the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. And hence, there's a rather expansive list here. Everything from straightforward witchcraft to necromancy to familiar spirits trying to talk to the dead. And my friend, these things are happening today. There are those who think they can consult with the dead and they can approach wizards and mediums. Such things are absolutely condemned in the Old Testament. Thou shalt not suffer them to leave. Furthermore, we notice in Second Chronicles 33, 6, yet another Old Testament passage indicating just how condemned this was in the sight of God. However, in brevity, might I ask us to think easily about a listing given in Galatians chapter 5 in the heart of the New Testament. It was on that occasion that Paul made a list of the, not only the works of the flesh, but also the fruits of the Spirit. And in that list of the works of the flesh, he made a reference to sorcery. And in that sentence, he said, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, participating in these kinds of activities will doom one's soul. One cannot go to heaven permitting or engaging in this any more than one can be an adulterer, a fornicator, an idolater, a person of hatefulness, one guilty of murder, and on down the list. And thus, it raises this issue far higher than just something that's fun and games. It's wrong. It was for God's people here, and it remains so until this day. The significance of that perhaps is to be noted in it's not merely entertainment. I've noticed in some television commercials that there are these sites that pick up the phone and call and talk to this person and tell your fortune will predict the future for you, and it says this is for entertainment. It's not entertainment. That person knows no more about your future than I do. And we appreciate then that that which is taking place is merely a money-making matter. But maybe a third lesson tonight. Besides witchcraft, and besides these lessons we've seen relative to taking care of one's possessions, what about vengeance? In Exodus 21... Beginning in verse 21, we find a discussion that, again, highlighted what we had asserted earlier. If any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And thus God legalized within this mosaic economy an attitude with respect to vengeance. One could, in fact, take the tooth or take out that tooth of one who had, in fact, resulted in the loss of his own. 
Or one could take the hand of one who had in fact acted in such a way as to result in the loss of his own. And that extended even to life. It is in that regard we notice that this Old Testament matter of life for life, tooth for tooth, challenges us to ask, has that continued throughout the Old Testament and does it continue today? Of course, you and I should give some careful thought as to that because there are some, of course, who believe that it has. Might I invite your thinking in this regard? This is stated not just in one place. So we do appreciate that it was a part of God's will. In Leviticus 24.19 as well as Deuteronomy 19, we find that all of these list this eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. I would point out, though, that there were cities of refuge. If a person's activity resulted in the accidental death of another, there were going to be six cities appointed in which an individual could flee to it so that the pursuers would not be able to come in and take your life because you had accidentally taken another's. One had to live, though, in that city and remain there until the death of the current high priest. Doesn't that help us see that this really was God's law in the Old Testament era? Life for life, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, eye for eye. But as you give some thought to the great transition in this law that took place, today we live beneath a far higher moral law than this one. Vengeance is to be no part of those who would have an interest in the pursuit of the things of God today. Because look with me at just a few of the verses that touch this subject. In Matthew 5, verse 39, we find on that occasion a discussion of in which Jesus had told some soldiers of that era and of that time that they were not to exact vengeance upon those before whom they worked. In Luke 3.14, we find a similar situation concerning what the Savior taught on that, or what John the Baptist taught on that occasion. We find later in Romans 12, verses 14 and following, and perhaps no text gets to the point any better or more quickly than this one. A rather lengthy reading of that passage, I think, would be in order for us as we discuss it. Romans chapter 12. Paul wrote, Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. And then jump forward to verse number 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And on that occasion, Paul expressly said, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Even if it's your enemy, even if it's one who has acted so maliciously towards you, do not return evil for evil. Jesus had earlier taught, in fact, pray for him. Later here, Paul expressly wrote, Avenge not yourselves. It's not our place in this life to take vengeance. God's going to take care of that at judgment. 
notice it says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Sometimes that's challenging and difficult, isn't it? For one who has acted with such meanness, with such ugliness, with such a disregard for your person and mine, and yet it is not our place to take vengeance on them here and now. God will do that later. As you look at that particular passage, you'll notice that one final thing now occurs before us, this element of compassion. In Exodus 22, verses 25 to 27, and this was the reading that Greg read before us earlier tonight. In Exodus 22, beginning in verses 25 and continuing through verse 27, we learn something valuable about compassion and its presence among the people of God. In particular, again, the text reads, If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as an usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. If thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge, thou shalt deliver it unto him by that, by that the sun goeth down. For that is his covering only. It is his raiment for his skin, wherein shall he sleep. And it shall come to pass when he crieth unto me that I will hear, for I am gracious. We learn the children of Israel, they were to be not only fair, but understandingly reasonable and compassionate as they engaged in borrowing and lending. We understand that not only in that day but our own, it's entirely possible for individuals to be exploitive. That is to say, to take advantage of others. In fact, sometimes we see that taking place as individuals are put in exceedingly bad circumstances. Think about the flooding that occurred in Nashville just a few months ago now. There were individuals then who raised the price of gasoline, raised the price of lumber and sheetrock and wood products, raised the price of things because they knew they could get it. God condemned that absolutely here. You do not exploit others. You do not take advantage of them. Thus, as one made a lending, that is when someone borrowed from another, if you take as collateral their coat, you make sure to give it back to them by the time the sun goes down so he's got something to sleep in. You do not act unreasonably and take advantage of them and cause him to unduly suffer because of the circumstance in which he is. But rather with compassion, you appreciate that if you lend money to him, do not charge exorbitant interest. Hasn't through society so many suffered when that kind of thing has happened? And individuals in meanness and coldness take advantage of somebody else's situation to fill their own pockets? God does not look favorably upon that. He did not then, and He certainly doesn't still. You'll notice in that, we find that this was a rather constant problem in the Old Testament in particular. Many of the minor prophets, in fact, address this very situation. In Micah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, God spelled it out to them. You do not take advantage of widows and those in unfortunate circumstances in society. You treat them honestly, fairly, reasonably, equity, equitably, and uprightly. You do not take advantage of them simply because of the circumstance that they're in. We find also in Amos 8, verses 4 and following, 
the prophet Amos was in fact very blunt and to the point. He rebuked the people directly as God spoke through him because of the activities in which they had been engaging. Believe it or not, God's people had begun to take advantage of widows, to take advantage of those in unfortunate circumstances, and God said it must be stopped. This is not to go on. In the heart of the New Testament, how did Paul affirm it in 1 Corinthians? In particular, in chapter 10, verse 24, we find this very interesting statement. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24, Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Thus, in one's consideration of others, I am not to look upon you and ask, What can I get out of him? What could I get of his that will make me wealthier, richer, perhaps better off? How can I covet his possessions? Paul said, I'm supposed to look on others, and we each are with an attitude of how can I assist his welfare? What may I do with honesty and uprightness that will in fact assist or aid in that regard? Never to take advantage. In fact, that's one of the chief errors of the lottery, isn't it? A lottery is nothing more than legalized exploitation, wherein many pay in and thus forfeit or give up what they have, and yet some person, perhaps a few, will in fact benefit by becoming wealthier out of it. It's nothing but legalized exploitation. Notice how that was condemned in this passage. Finally, in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, Paul admonished each of us, to look upon others with an attitude of love, not to take advantage of them and take what they have, but to look upon them and to ask how we can seek their betterment or how we can seek the higher welfare for them. It is with those thoughts in mind that compassion was in fact embedded in the Old Testament laws that we've read tonight. As one gave money or at least allowed others to borrow from them, there was to be an element of compassion in that which took place. In these matters that we've discussed tonight, these four lessons, it would seem a good time to summarize some of them in these ways. We have learned in particular that this study of Exodus, though these laws may seem to be ancient and antique and archaic, they have principles within them that are just as needful to be put in place for you and for me today. Principles such as the matter of responsibility for that which we have and to be dutiful servants of it and to not be careless and allow bad things to happen when it can be prevented. And in that we learn about these accidents that will occur, no doubt. But as those take place, that element of guilt was not present then. We've learned another lesson about the error and danger and abomination of witchcraft and how that it still remains a thing that's wrong today. We learned about the matter of vengeance and how that's God's business now and not yours and mine. But rather we pray for those and bless those that despitefully use us, not try to in fact do to them what they've done to us. And finally, we've seen the element of compassion also stated in the beauty spot of the Old Testament in that statement again of Exodus chapter 22. With it being these lessons tonight, we'll notice that the next two chapters will also have another set of laws, and so we will look at another aspect of those in our lesson next Lord's Day evening, if it be the will of God. But for tonight, might we ask about 
the application of these in our lives. Have you known someone or have you been tempted to dabble in witchcraft or to consult familiar spirits or to engage in reading tarot cards or things like that? Or have you allowed yourself to act uncompassionately to those that have borrowed things from you? Or have you, in fact, had a tendency to exact vengeance upon someone who acted with such meanness to you? Or have we failed to appreciate the matter of accidents and responsibility? If any of that be the notion of your life tonight, and if you'd wish to make a public response, might we state that you need to be a Christian if you are not one, a faithful, God-believing, Christ-honoring New Testament Christian. Tonight, if you've never been thus baptized and thus entered into the kingdom of God, having been added to it by Christ Himself, Acts 2.47, why not let tonight be the night that that happens? Everything's prepared and ready. If we could be of assistance to you, why not tonight? You need to believe with all your heart Jesus is the Son of God, Romans 10.14. You need to repent of your, you need to repent of your sins, Luke 13.5. You need to confess the sweet name of Jesus as the only begotten Son of God, Matthew ten thirty two and three, and to be baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts twenty two sixteen. If we could help you in that way tonight, we would be happy to do so. If you need to come back to your first love because you once were faithful but no longer are, then you need to make things right tonight, for there may be no tomorrow. We need to do that by prayer, for that's God's command, Acts 8, verses 20 and following, 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. And if we could help in doing that by praying with you and for you, we would only ask you let us know, and we'd be honored to do so. If you have a need to respond publicly to the gospel call of invitation tonight, why not do that, as together we stand and while we sing. <laughs>